Well, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday morning, and that means it's time for Bible study. And today we are going to be doing Revelation chapter 2. I don't know about you, but I loved last week's study. Getting into Revelation is so interesting. And I got so many notes after last week. Thank you all for your energy and for your interest. I really think that we're hungry for explanations and understanding of books like Revelation. And so I'm glad that we are doing this together. So here we go. Let's jump in with a quick word of prayer to get us started right. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this gorgeous day and we ask that you help to open us up. Help us to make space for your spirit in us, that your spirit will fill us up and give us strength and give us courage that we can face this world, face this world confident in your presence, confident in the work that we can do, confident that we can help bring about goodness. Lord, we ask today that you hold all those who are sick and need your healing touch, that you give doctors, nurses, and those caregivers wisdom to take care of those who are sick as best they can. For those near death, we ask especially your presence upon them and their loved ones. For those recently who have died, may they rest in peace and rise in glory. May we be inspired by the study of your ancient word to help us be light in the darkest places and hands and feet in the world you love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, everybody. Okay, so a quick few housekeeping pieces. A reminder that we've got all of the previous lessons from the Rector's Bible Study on our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study, so just slash RBS. And if you do not get weekly reminder emails about when we will be studying and what we will be studying, I'd love for you to get those. And so do email Meredith Rose. Her email address is on that website, stmichael.org RBS, and she can get you on that email list so that you get information and reminders like, next week we are off. We will not have Bible study the day before Thanksgiving. And so we will take a week off and be back two weeks from today with Revelation chapter three. So just sign up for those emails. We'd love for you to get those. And if you're on one of our social media platforms, Facebook or YouTube watching live, let us know you're there. Say hello wherever you are. Greet a friend if you see that they're watching with you. And of course, I welcome your comments and your questions there in those chat boxes. And if you're watching via our website, then know that you can email Meredith anytime with questions and she'll send them to me. We always get a good number of questions in the weeks between Wednesdays. And so do keep those coming because it helps me know how best to direct this study so that we all get as much as we can out of it. All right, so we opened Revelation chapter one last week with a little bit of context about where Revelation fits and how Revelation connects to some of the apocalyptic literature, specifically Daniel from the Old Testament. And so I want to say just another easy word about those connections. We got a question last week that asked what we know about John who wrote Revelation. And the real quick answer is we don't know much. Last week, I addressed that very, you know, uh, quickly by saying tradition held that John could be the one who wrote the gospel, or perhaps that John was the one who wrote the letters. It is almost certain that John, we call him John of Patmos. Sometimes he's referred to as John the Divine. So if you know of a church, John the Divine, St. John the Divine, then that would be John of Revelation, the one who wrote Revelation. That John is almost certainly not the same John who wrote the Gospels and probably the letters, and they are likely not the same John who would have been an apostle of Jesus, right? One of Jesus' first disciples. We probably have at least three Johns there. John the Apostle, John the Evangelist, who probably wrote the letters, and John of Patmos, or John the Divine, who received this revelation of Christ and then wrote this letter to the seven churches of Asia. I'm going to say that I land on the side of three different Johns. Um, 
if you would like them to be the same John, that's okay. Um, but I think most scholars would say they're likely different. And so John the Divine, John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation, we just really don't know much about him. Um, we do know that there was, there is some historical evidence that a John was exiled to the island of Patmos and that John wrote letters, which is totally normal. If you were a relatively, in a relatively normal situation, you could write letters back and forth. And so this letter would have gone from John in prison to the churches in Asia. Now I showed you a map last week and a lot of people appreciated seeing that map. So I'm going to do something similar this week, um, but it actually connects with the way that this letter proceeds, right? Chapters two and three are really messages to the seven churches of Asia. And so there's a new map that I'd like to put up right now that shows us where those seven churches in Asia were. Now, as we noted last week, it is Western Turkey, what is today Western Turkey, back then considered Asia Minor. It was a region of the Roman Empire at this time. And as you see in the very center of your screen, the island of Patmos is where John would have been imprisoned. And he would have written this letter and mailed it likely to Ephesus first. Geographically speaking, it would have been easiest to get to Ephesus. And then the way that the geography and the streets, the paths, the merchant trails, all that stuff would have been shaped, this red line that you see going from Patmos to Ephesus to Smyrna, then Pergamum and on, is most likely the path this letter would have taken. And so John writes this letter in that order. We will see on this path that the messages to the seven churches in Asia in chapters two and three are written in this specific order. Ephesus first, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, and onward. Interesting, huh? All right, let me see if I can get all this back. Um, there we are. Here I am. Okay, so that's a good map. I know that people like maps. It's always very helpful. And I've got a few images to share this week as well. So as we are looking at chapter two, um, one, one question I just saw pop up, um, why was Johnson to Patmos, um, Liz asks. The answer really is we don't know. Um, just like we don't know much about John, why he would have been sent to Patmos, we're not sure. That he would have been sent to Patmos it makes a decent amount of sense. Um, I think I referenced Patmos last week as being sort of like an Alcatraz of Asia Minor. So rather than trying to hold someone in a prison in a town, if someone was really meant to be in prison for good, then sending that person over to Patmos would have made a lot of sense. It was about 30 miles off the coast, a relatively easy trip by boat, but also one that you could not swim. So nobody's really swimming from Patmos back to the mainland. And so once someone was really meant to be in prison for good, sending them to Patmos was an excellent way of basically making their imprisonment easy and less expensive so that the Romans didn't have to really worry about escape because these people were not going to escape from an island. And so that's really why Patmos was used. And so John would not have been on Patmos on his own. Patmos would have had lots of prisoners of the Roman Empire for many different reasons. So looking at a couple questions I received last week, I'm actually going to include a few of them in today's lesson. So let's go ahead and jump in to chapter two. Today, we are going to have five sections of our lesson, which sounds like a lot, but it's really kind of straightforward. The first part of our lesson is going to be about the messages in general. Just a statement about why each of the churches would have had individual messages. And then the next four sections, two, three, four, and five, will be the specific messages to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Theatira. So let's begin with section one, with what the letters really are. The letters to each of the seven churches in Asia follow a relatively similar pattern. And that pattern is pretty straightforward. You get a salutation in which John vis-a-vis -vis Jesus 
reminds people of the divine Son of Man, of Jesus, reminds them of some facet of Jesus in that salutation. Then you get to a point of praise. And so Jesus makes sure to say what the communities are doing well. Then there is an admonishment. Now, it's not an admonition. Admonition would be kind of a gentle whatever. An admonishment really is this kind of forceful, heavy word about what they should not be doing. And then finally, there is a promise. And that promise is tied to a vision of what the kingdom is really all about. Now that salutation, praise, admonishment, and promise pattern is mostly in every message. Not every message has every component, we'll get to that. Um, But the general arc of each message is very similar. Now each of those letters points to the facet of Christ that is important for us because we, just like those early Christians in the first century, are seeking to follow Jesus. And so a reminder of who we are following, of the life we've chosen to live, is important. And each one of these messages, although specific in context to each of the churches in Asia, is very universal. When John, as the writer of Revelation, praises these churches, it's typically a praise that we can probably understand. And when each of these churches receives an admonishment, it's also an admonishment that we can all understand. And so although each of the messages are very specific and targeted to a certain church in Asia, they really are meant for all the churches of Asia and really for the church, not just a specific community in a specific place, but for the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century. That's one of the reasons we study Revelation, is so that we can continue our own discipleship formation by looking at the way that disciples at some point in time, like the first century, struggled, answers that they gave, and efforts they made in order to be the faithful people that they want to be and that we want to be. This connects with a question that I received that is a bit more specific about why Christianity became a religion. Um, One of the questions I got was that early Christianity looked a lot like a philosophy and that it hearkened to a lot of the older philosophies, specifically Greek and Roman, and that I think, who wrote this? Bob. Bob wrote this. The question really rests with, why did Christianity ever become a religion rather than just sort of a philosophy? And it's a very good question because Christianity at its core really is a philosophy. I mean, when Jesus is asked, what is the most important thing? Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It is important for Christians to not let their religion get in the way of their faith. That's a fine line that churches, religion, really walks. And it's one that we should, we should welcome the challenge of walking that fine line all the time. We should not shy away from reflecting critically and constructively on our religion. Now, why did Christianity become a religion and not just a philosophy? My opinion, of course, I don't know the answer, but my opinion and why I do what I do in a church, why I have really committed my life to a religious expression of a Christian ideal is because I think our human condition requires that we be held accountable to be given some clear boundaries and expectations and practices so that the habits that we perform reinforce the faith that we hold. So it's fine to call Christianity a philosophical approach to living, but it's an approach to living. And so it's not something that can just stay intellectual. It's not something that can just stay theoretical. Christianity as a philosophical understanding of God and the world and where we fit and what God intends for us 
has to kind of hit the ground at some point. We have to be able to know what to do. And that's really where religion comes in. And we ask questions about, you know, based on this very important idea, what then do we do? How do we live? How do we treat one another? How do we create a social structure? How do we make choices, everyday choices, from small choices to macro huge choices that have global ramifications? Religion is what creates a direction, creates a path that we can then follow, and we trust that religion at its best is getting us, moving us in the right direction the great majority of the time. One of the reasons that I love Anglican Christianity is because Anglican Christianity, which is Episcopal Christianity, allows us to ask questions and reflect very critically and very constructively on our religion. We are not bound by some kind of extensive, huge doctrine and dogma that holds us to a path that is unbending, one that is completely inflexible, so that we find ourselves kind of in a deeper and deeper hole. Instead, Anglican Christianity, Episcopal Christianity, is how I describe it as directional. We are moving in a certain direction and we are moving together. And we don't let rules and regulations bind us from the call that Christ puts to us to love. You've often heard Christianity referred to as the way of love, and that kind of means that love's got to be the absolute root and foundation of what we do. It's sort of akin to what I said um, when we were studying Daniel and, of course, Genesis. When we as Christians experience something in Scripture, especially from the Old Testament, but often in maybe the letters of Paul and others, that seems to go against what Jesus said or taught or the way that Jesus lived, we have to go with Jesus first. And it doesn't mean that those passages or people are inherently wrong. It just means that they're moving in the right direction and that as we move in that direction, answering specific questions and trying our best, sometimes we make mistakes. And the community, that religious community, is who sits with us in community and says, you know what, you, you tried well and you gave it a good shot and you did your best, but we really all feel like what God has revealed to us in the person of Jesus calls us to act a bit differently. That is the essence of repentance. You know, in our culture right now, we are so fixated on everyone's value and everyone being special and unique and inherently um, feeling good about themselves, you know, self-care and, and self-pride and all the other stuff, that we tend to kind of smart and resist any idea that the community could say to us, that's not quite how you should be. Because it feels insulting. Like somehow what we are doing is wrong. You know, we get people all the time who speak about their truth, right? Speak your truth. At its core, that's not a bad thing. But when the idea of my truth or our truth or speaking my truth to a person hurts the other person or hurts the relationship or somehow goes beyond the desire to love, that's a problem. And religion at its best, and I say at its best because sometimes it doesn't act like its best, at its best holds us accountable to finding truth that really keeps love and relationship at the very core, first with God and then with one another. Oh my gosh, I was so preachy. <laughs> you know, I have to be, I have to be careful. Um, the problem with giving a preacher a Bible study is that it often becomes a sermon. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much. And we're going to jump into the messages um, in chapter two. Um, Mm -mm -mm. I see one more question. 
Madeline asked a good one. Um, it's about chapter one. You know what, Madeline? I'm going to hold off on that, and I'll, I will not forget you. It may not be today, but I will not forget you. Um, let's jump into the second part of today's lesson, the message to Ephesus. So turn to chapter two of Revelation, and we're going to get rolling. I'm going to read each of these messages in total, so I'm going to kind of read fast. All right, so follow along in your Bibles. Here we go. Chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have, test, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So what we see here, we'll stop there. What we see here is the basic structure of these messages, right? Verse 1. These are the words of Christ, and then it harkens back to an actual description of Christ that we see in chapter 1. Madeline's question gets right at this. Madeline says, why does Revelation give such a detailed description of the earthly body of Christ? Because shouldn't the study or understanding of the nature of God and our relationship with him focus on the soul of Christ, how we should aspire to be him, not what he looks like? It's a great question, and of course, we should not ever get caught up in a literal description of the body of Christ. However, Revelation is using that physical description in a very specific way. Chapter 1 references back to the book of Daniel, right? So everyone reading this letter would immediately begin to give credence to this vision of John's as being very legitimate because we see an echo of the same vision that they would have known from the book of Daniel. So just like you might use a popular, well-respected, trusted person to write the foreword of your book to give you a little bit more credibility, this is kind of what John's doing here. John is using a vision of Christ that all of the good Jews would have known to give him a bit more credibility. In addition, the way that John has structured this letter is such that he describes Jesus in total, and then he picks out little qualities of Jesus to connect with each of the seven churches in Asia. So we see here in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. All right, so in the salutation, there's a hearkening back to the description of Jesus. Good. That's going to be repeated with each of these seven messages. Then we get into the praise period in Ephesus. And the praise here is that Ephesus has resisted the evildoer, right? They have resisted and tolerated the evildoer and not, been, not found them true, right? They have made sure that they find them false. They've endured all of this and they've been patient in all of this. Now, a quick historic word about Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredibly important city in the Roman Empire, a wealthy city, the third largest city in the entire empire, all right? So Ephesus is no small place. Ephesus is that port city where there would have been lots of buildings and a very highly structured social life. In Ephesus, we know as the capital of the Roman Empire's region in Asia Minor. As the capital of, of that region in Asia Minor, it would have been one of those jewels in the crown of the empire. And we know this because Ephesus was the home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. And so I want to show you a quick picture just because I'm a big classics nerd. And I wanted to show you what would have been there in the city of Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis. All right, see this? This is a big deal, a big deal. This would have been 
there in the city of Ephesus such that Ephesus would have had a major Roman deity worship scene. <laughs> that was a very awkward way of saying that. Um, you know, Ephesus would have been the place where the Roman gods and the idolatry that John is writing against would have flourished. And so John really in this letter to, to the Ephesians is praising them for resisting that kind of idolatry. It would have taken real energy and intentionality in this place with the glory of the empire, right? A temple like that with a, a social structure that would have rotated around that temple, they resisted that temple and that's pretty incredible. The other thing that we see here that references the temple to Artemis is at the end of the message to the Ephesians, we see this reference to the tree of life. Now the tree of life is most definitely a reference to what we see in the second chapter of Genesis with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Revelation is a new creation. It is a recreation, a return to the perfection that is the Garden of Eden in Genesis, which is why last year I wanted to study Genesis before we studied Revelation. We will see in Revelation over and over and over again references to Genesis because the way that our Bible is constructed is with these two bookends. You get the story of Genesis on one side, which is the creation. And then you get the story of Revelation at the end, which is the re-creation. God created something perfect that was then messed up. And in the end, God will bring about that perfection once again. So we are all in this trajectory where we've come from the garden and in our own imperfection, we have fallen and Christ comes to bring us all completely and totally back to the perfect relationship that God always intended us to have so that in the end, we can be in wholeness and oneness with God in that recreation. Got it? That's the big jump from Genesis to Revelation. And so here, this reference to the tree of life is absolutely a reference to the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. But the reference to the tree of life is also a reference to the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis had at its core a garden with a particular tree that was considered the tree of life. It was a tree in which people sought asylum. If you could get close enough to that tree, then you would be forgiven for the bad stuff that you had done. So say you're running from the authorities, trying not to get arrested, trying not to go to prison or be executed. If you could somehow get to that tree, you were effectively safe. Think about what that means. In the temple to Artemis, we have a tree of life in which the Ephesians, the Romans, believed that there was a way to be forgiven of the wrongs that you have done. What does that sound like? It sounds like an opportunity to be saved. What John is doing here in this message to the Ephesians, John is making it explicit that Jesus offers us the way to be saved, that it is through Christ that we actually achieve the tree of life. God has promised us a way out of the bad stuff that we have done. When we repent and we turn, we are able to be saved, forgiven for anything that we've done. And in that regard, Jesus becomes that Messiah and that Savior. Now, let's dig a little bit more into this message to Ephesus. So, Jesus is really happy with the Ephesians. I think that it's easy to say. Um, they're working hard. They are resisting those who claim to be apostles but are not. And that work definitely takes energy. Yet, the admonishment here that we see, the flip side of the coin of praise, is a delicate balance between what remaining faithful to the Word of God through Christ, that that does not get in the way 
of what is at the core of the gospel, and that is love. It's effectively what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, right? When we see here, it says, remember that from you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. I'm sorry, this is verse five. If not, I will come and remove your lampstands, right? What Jesus is saying here is that everyone needs to root themselves in love. I'm sorry, I meant to read verse four. Ha! Look at verse four. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay, abandoned the love you had at first. What John's really saying here is, if the church at Ephesus started off right, they really had love first, and then they have gotten away from it. And doesn't this sound totally plausible? I mean, it sounds like a very familiar story. If we think about the way that a church begins, a church begins with big open arms, right? Everybody's in. They're inviting everybody to come in and to join them in their church, to worship together, to pray together, and they're excited and they're welcoming and they bring everybody in. Then, of course, as a community of faith forms itself, they begin to create habits and traditions that then become like rules and laws and you can't do that here, right? I had a, had a mentor once um, who said the first church he worked in, um, their mission statement was, we don't do that here. And I think we can laugh at that, but so many churches get to a point where they are so committed to all of the things that they do that are unique, their own traditions and rhythms and habits, that they effectively close themselves off to new ideas, to new things, and to new people. And that's really the biggest issue, is that when church, just like we talked about religion, when it gets in the way of the actual point of the religion, which is developing disciples for Christ, then we have to reevaluate what we're doing, and we have to get out of the way. And that's really what the message to Ephesus is all about. You're doing such good stuff, but you've forgotten about the love that you had at the beginning. So what Jesus says here in this message is, get back to it. Get back in touch with that love that you had at your core, and you're gonna be all good. Now, I do wanna say one final thing about the structure of uh, these messages that we'll see over and over again. If you look at verse seven, we see, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, all right? That's, that's something repeated at the end of each message. And then there's this idea of, to everyone who conquers, and then there's a promise. The word conquers repeated in all the messages, and I simply wanted to take a moment to say, the idea of conquering here, although it has a, an explicitly physical connotation, kind of an overwhelm to conquer, that something tangibly is being done, here the idea of conquering is much more about, in spirit, what the message to Ephesus is reiterating is praise for the resistance of what could lead them astray. And so what, they've, what they do effectively is they conquer the temptation. They conquer their desire or their exhaustion when they just kind of want to give up and give in. They don't. And so those who conquer those temptations will ultimately receive this promise. Okay, that's the end of the message to Ephesus. Oh, David asks a really good question. Would John's letter only be read in the church of Ephesus? So I'm kind of guessing maybe what you mean is would the message to Ephesus only be read in the church of Ephesus? And no, this would have been delivered in, well, you know, my, my caveat is always, we don't know. Um, but ultimately, we believe it is most likely that this letter would have been written in total and then just copied and sent to all the different churches. And so... Yes, this message would have been written or read aloud in the church of Ephesus, but there's nothing to say that they wouldn't have read aloud the messages to the other six churches. So I think it's very easy for us to understand that 
all of the churches would have heard all of the messages, which is one of the reasons why I think John structured them in such a way that each of the praises, the references to Christ, the praises, the, ad, the admonishments, and the promises taken in total really provide the full message of Revelation itself. Okay, so let's move on to section three, the message to Smyrna. We'll begin at verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. But be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. <laughs> All right. We begin with a word of where Christians fit. So it bears repeating that the early Christians were rooted in Judaism. We know that Jesus is described, even in what we would, might consider Christian writings, as the Messiah. Well, where do, where do we even get that term? Messiah is a term that we inherit from Judaism. The Jewish prophets, scriptures, tradition, promise the arrival of a Messiah, a Messiah who will make all things right. The early followers of Jesus explicitly understood him as being the fulfillment of that messianic promise. Therefore, early Christian theology is absolutely rooted in Jewish understanding of the Messiah. So that all makes sense, right? I mean, I think we all have that. The early church then had to wrestle with the Jewish people who decided not to follow Jesus. Okay? In places like Ephesus and Smyrna and all of the others, there would have been Jewish communities who were parts of thriving synagogues and who would have not really been excited about the Christian churches. It appears that in Smyrna, the Jews took that dislike one step farther and began to defame the Christians. To that end, what we see here in this message to Smyrna is an acknowledgement of their affliction, an acknowledgement of the slander that they have received by the Jews in Smyrna. Okay, so now we get to a phrase that we, we don't like, which is the Jews that are not Jews but are a synagogue of Satan. Dang, I mean, that is, that's what's there. And so we have to figure out what John is really saying here. So what I want to offer you is a way of understanding the idea of Satan. When we hear that word, Satan, I think most of us immediately think a, a specific person. We get the red suit and the horns and the pitchfork and the pointy tail and all that stuff. The idea of Satan is less an embodiment of an actual person, something that is anthropomorphized, but instead Satan is at its core the description of an accuser, one who accuses and even tempts someone away from God, all right? So this idea of Satan as an evildoer is a little bit too far done. This accuser or adversary of God it could be described as anybody who stands against God. We know a good point in our gospel story where Jesus is doing some good work and Peter comes up and Peter rebukes Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus is not using the term Satan as a, an, an embodiment of some full evil, like the fallen angel demon kind of horror movie style Satan. Instead, Jesus and also John use the term Satan 
as one who is really against the work of God, an adversary of the work of God. And it's not always, it can be episodic, right? Peter's certainly not working against the purposes of God his entire life, and so thus Jesus calls him Satan. No, it's in that moment Peter has missed an idea, and he becomes an adversary of God's purpose. In that same way, the word Satan here, devil here, is being used as a one who is working against the purposes of God. And so, this faithful Christian community in Smyrna is receiving the, the pressure, receiving the slander of the Jews in that community because they have chosen not to follow Jesus. And so therefore, they have to, they have to work against the Christians. Because if you can put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish people in Smyrna, these Christians are trying to steal their people. And so rather than just holding tight to what they know is true as faithful Jews, instead they're working against the Christians. And so in this message to the church in Smyrna, there actually isn't an admonishment. This letter to Smyrna, along with the letter to Philadelphia, are the only two messages of the seven that actually don't have a problem found with the community. And instead, just simply say, I know what you're going through, and you're doing good work. And that's really how we leave this message to Ah. So Greg asks, who are the Nicolaitans? So the Nicolaitans were an early, uh, I guess you could call them an early Christian group that effectively didn't follow um, the what became the true Christian theology. Um, the Nicolaitans really just sought to combine both what we would consider Orthodox Christian theology and what was going on in the culture, a bit more of a, um, we might consider it cultural relativism, and resisting that way of being Christian was praised um, and will be praised multiple times. Um, there is a sense here that, you know, the Christians at the time, what do I want to say? The Christians in the first century, and, and really for a while, for a couple centuries, were not living in a Christian world. They were living in a Roman world, primarily. Which means being Christian was countercultural. It would have been very easy for the Christians to have found some smoother, simpler middle path where they could both be Christian and Roman at the same time, right? And we're going to see that, um, I think it's in, the, it's in the message to the Pergamum, um, where we get, yeah, 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 it's in the message to Pergamum. We're going to see this highlighted um, where some Christians likely wanted to merge what would have been kind of the purity of Jesus' message with the cultural, culturally accepted way of being that was Roman. That merger ultimately dilutes the Christian message to the point where it's lost. And the um, Nicolaitans would have been a way of trying to merge and smooth out and do Christianity a bit more easily. Um, and man, let me just say, without, without unpacking this, because I just, we need hours and hours and really a conversation and a drink to do this. Um, I hope that you are courageous enough to see that much of what we do in this country is a merger of civic ideals and faith ideals so that we do get this weirdness 
of kind of doing American things, but we do so in a way that somehow makes us good followers of Jesus. And that's really messy and potentially dangerous when we begin to hold up civic ideals above Christian ideals. And I say Christian, and what I really want you to hear is what Jesus does, right? Because Christian can mean so many different things um, and has been corrupted in so many different ways. Um, What I really want you to hear me say is, if we look at the person of Jesus and what he did and what he taught in the Gospels, there are moments when our desire to be good, civic people can actually begin to get in the way and become more important than doing what Jesus really taught and did in the Gospels. That's hard to hear. I know we need more time to kind of unpack that. But what the Nicolaitans and then what the Romans and beyond, what these messages are really all about is resisting what is so hard about living in the world. And sometimes living in the world can look so good and can seem so good. And yet what we're called to do as disciples of Jesus is work hard to differentiate what is really from God and what is really just from the world. And that takes energy and it can be exhausting. And that's why most people don't want to do it. Most people ultimately just want to kind of move on and just take the easy route. Don't really think too hard. Don't struggle. Just do what feels right and everything will be okay. Uh, We hear time and time again in the letters and here in Revelation, that's a kind of laziness that God really doesn't want for us. So I love you. We'll talk more about this later. So let's move on to the fourth section, the message to Pergamum. Jump in at verse 12, and we'll get through this message. Verse 12 starts, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So we'll pause there after that message. Here is where I want to bring in a question that we got last week from chapter 1. So Ross writes that in chapter 1, the two-edged sword is mentioned and appears to be justified or justice, um, but it also seems it can be punitive or nasty. And so what does John mean by specifying a two-edged sword? So here we get the repeated phrase, two-edged sword. As we saw in chapter 1, Jesus is described as having a tongue like a two-edged sword. What that really means is that the word of Jesus comes out sharp and true. Think about what a two-edged sword really is. In its purest form, a two-edged sword is a sword that can cut both ways, okay? If you're going out in battle, wouldn't you prefer to have a sword that can cut both ways and not just one way? Think about literally swinging a sword in battle. You have to swing once, and then you'd have to bring the sword back up to cut a second time. But if you had a double edge, you would cut one way and cut the other way. So you can effectively swing back and forth and cut twice as hard, twice as often, twice as fast if your sword had a double edge. 
just like that, the word of Christ has such a sharp, piercing double edge that it can overcome whatever this world throws at the faithful. And we're going to see that as we kind of piece, uh, pick apart this message to Pergamum. So, Pergamum was another one of those important cities in the Roman Empire. It was built up on a hill that's about a thousand feet above sea level. It was eminently defensible. It became one of those very important fortress cities in the Roman Empire, and it's actually where the governor of this region lived because it was so well fortified. You could only access it on the southern side of the hill, and so you could defend it really, really well. So this throne of Satan reference is actually a reference to a physical thing, a physical altar slash throne that existed in Pergamum at the time. So again, let's take a look at some pictures, because I like pictures. So in Pergamum today, you can go and see the ruins of what would have been an altar to Zeus. This is what you could see if you went to Pergamum today. It's the base of a large, nothing on the scale of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, but it would have been very large. You can see the steps. I mean, this is kind of a large, big chunk. And at the time, there would have been an altar that looked like this. You could go up all of these steps, and once you're at the top, you would find an altar really a throne of Zeus. And this was a place where civic life would have centered, right? People would have come here to worship Zeus. They would have had festivals here on the steps of this altar or throne. And just as I mentioned before, the early Christians would have wanted to participate in the civic life of their town. And here Jesus again is calling them to resist that kind of participation, to resist being a part of the world, so to speak, in a way that would tempt them toward idolatry and fornication. Now we also have a very interesting reference here to Balaam and Balak. So if you remember back to 1 Kings, we have a story of Balaam and Balak, where Balak is the king of the Moabites, and he wants to curse the Israelites who are coming in and threatening his people. I'm sorry, this is in Numbers. Jezebel in the next message is in 1 Kings. So this story is in Numbers, where Balak as the king of the Moabites is seeing the Israelites and feels threatened by them. This is at the point when the Israelites are conquering the Promised Land. And so Balak wants to curse the Israelites so that they cannot overwhelm his people. So Balak calls a seer, a prophet, named Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. But Balaam is thwarted. He isn't able to curse the Israelites. Remember the talking donkey? Balaam instead wants the reward the king has promised him, and so instructs Balak, the king, to undermine the Israelites in a slightly different way. Specifically, sending the Moabite women into the Israelites' camps to seduce the Israelite men. So very specifically, what we find is that the Israelite men are seduced into fornication with the Moabite women, which dilutes their identity as people of God, as the chosen people of Yahweh, and also invites into their families, into their homes, a worship of gods beyond Yahweh, the idols of the Moabite people. So very specifically, we get this reference to Balak and Balaam in the message to Pergamum to resist doing things with the people in Pergamum who are Roman, who are, who are idolatrous, pagan, who go and worship at the altar of Zeus, because any kind of dilution with those people undermines their faithfulness in Christ. Does that kind of make sense? So I'm going to say a little bit more about the idolatry stuff um, 
when we get to the message um, to Theatira. Let's see. Oh, man, we have four minutes. Um, let me think. I really do think that I need a bit more time here for Theatira. Um, yeah, maybe. Oh, come on, let's do it. Okay, hang with me. We're going to do four fast minutes, right? All right, so we jump into verse 18. We're going to skip. Let's read verse 18. And to the angel of the Lord in Theatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patience, patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Let's jump. We'll just stop there. Um, Theatira in the ancient world was a center of metallurgy, metalwork and specifically copper and bronze. And so we see here that John's message to Theatira references and recalls a description of Christ with flame and bronze that would have related directly to the Theatirian economy. We also see here, similar to the reference to Balak and Balaam, a reference to Jezebel. Now let's jump back into the Old Testament. First Kings, the story of Jezebel is that she becomes wife to King Ahab. And King Ahab was the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So recall when we studied Daniel that at one point after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Each of those kingdoms had their own kingly lineage. Ahab was the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jezebel became his wife. Jezebel was part of a Canaanite community who worshipped Baal, B-A-A-L. Baal was really the Canaanite deity that the Israelites wanted to put down in order to focus only on Yahweh. Jezebel comes in, becomes the wife of King Ahab, which already is not a good idea, and she exerts a huge amount of power and authority over Ahab and, by virtue, the northern kingdom of the Israelites to begin to worship Baal. That kind of influence led a lot of the Israelites in the northern kingdom astray and was one of the primary reasons that the prophets spoke against their practices of idolatry or else they would be taken into exile. And then, of course, we know that the northern kingdom was sacked by the kingdom of Assyria and they were taken into exile. And this all happened before the Babylonian exile. Jezebel was the person who led the Israelites astray. And we see here that Theatira has their own literal woman named Jezebel who is inviting the Israelites into a a lifestyle that would have a lot of sexual immorality, sexual relativism, and would lead the Israelites astray. Now, we can read this passage as something that is about sexual morality, but it really is a bit bigger than that because sex, marriage, family, procreation, all of that actually unites two peoples And if you unite two peoples who have radically different opinions of God, then what you're doing is you're diluting both. And you're creating this sort of pool of vagueness. And what the message to Theatirians is really getting at is you've got to maintain, you've got to value your faith so much so that you resist fornication and you resist really The idea of mixing, in a sexual sense, marriages where you don't hold this pure idea of Christian discipleship at its core. And that can be a relatively hard message to receive. I imagine quite a few people who are here in our study today are either the product of mixed religious marriages or are in a mixed religious marriage themselves. And so here this message to Theatira is... The core of Christian identity calls us to make such a significant commitment 
that we resist a dilution of that faith. Now, we as a church in the 21st century can create a nuanced opinion of that, but knowing what the message to Theatira is, is important for us in order to make the most informed faithful decision for ourselves as we read this message to ask ourselves, okay, if this is the message that the Theatirans needed to hear, what about this has something good to offer me today? And time is up. And so I didn't quite get everything done with chapter two, but it is a longer chapter than chapter three. And so I'll tie up some loose ends of chapter two in two weeks when we gather. So ask some questions, make those comments in the fields here if you're on Facebook or YouTube, or email Meredith Rose with those questions. I will collect them, and then we will be back together in two weeks. Remember, no class next week. I wish you all a very, very happy Thanksgiving. If you are traveling, be safe. Be safe anyway, because we know the infection rates are going up and I don't want you all to experience that. It's, it's a real thing. And so keep those face masks on, stay distant, do all the stuff we're supposed to do, and stay safe. May God bless you all, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving.